Friends, our scripture reading this morning comes to us from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. This is chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Listen now for the word of the Lord. It is necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I, oh, I do not know, God knows, was caught into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses." But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be in Florida. After cold, cold days in Boston, we had two feet of snow last week. Uh, I'd be glad to bring some of it down here and give it to you. Share it around a bit. I see heads going the other direction. But uh, always fun to be in Florida, especially this time of year. It's spring training, and I must confess my loyalties lie down the road a little piece in Fort Myers. You would expect that, being from Boston. Uh, And I understand this is Orioles territory. We're in the same division, and we fight it out, but that's okay. Always fun for uh, Marianne and me to be in a church that's pastored by one of our loves. Uh, to see the fruit of our labors. And I can tell that Pastor Hope loves you and you love her, and we're so glad for the ministry here. And so it's just a great joy to be with you this morning at the well. Life is full of disappointments. All of us have had them, and the reality is most of us don't deal with those disappointments very well. They come in a lot of different ways to us. Some of our biggest disappointments, perhaps, have been in relationship to work. Some of you can perhaps recall a time when you were certain that you were going to get a job. You knew it was just the right job for you. You were qualified. It was just tailor-made. Went to somebody else. Disappointment. Or you thought, sure, that a promotion was coming and... The promotion never came. Or some of you are or have been in the past in jobs that 
weren't going anywhere, and you just scratched your head and said, what am I doing here? Disappointment in our work. And then for other people, the greatest disappointments may be in relationships. Some of you have gone through the deep anguish of a divorce. And all of the dreams and aspirations on that day you said, I do, seem to just eventually evaporate into thin air. And some of you are still in a marriage relationship, but if you're honest with yourself, you really feel disappointment about the way it's going, about the conflicts, the inability to communicate, and all the other things that can easily bog us down in the marriage. Or perhaps, the, for some of you, it's the fact that you always wanted to get married and it never happened. And deep anguish and ache about that. For some of you, the disappointments may be with your children. Children who've struggled a great deal in life. That Perhaps some have children who turned their back on your faith. Or perhaps... Children are just finding life very, very difficult, and you feel deep disappointment about it. Children, some of you may feel disappointment about your parents at times. They're not always cracked up to be uh, what they're supposed to be, are they? Or maybe your disappointment is more inward, and you feel disappointment deep down within about who you are and the way things are going deep within your soul. Your spiritual life seems sluggish. Or you find that your character is at odds with the commitments of your mind. Or you find that your emotions are set off by the least little things. And deep down within you just feel a disappointment about me. Or maybe some of you feel disappointment even about the church and about church life. It's easy to look at other churches, churches down the street, the other side of town, and, you know, they seem to be growing a lot faster and perhaps disappointment with people in the church. The reality is, throughout life and through many different aspects of life, we all feel disappointment. Our dreams and our aspirations are not attained, and disappointment lurks in the shadows. And when it comes... We're all prone to do what the Apostle Paul did in this text that Pastor Hope just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, Paul recounts his disappointment in the context of great opportunity. And it's kind of some interesting language there in the first few verses where he talks about this unusual experience he had. He actually, you don't even know it's Paul talking about himself at first. But he describes what was evidently some kind of a mystical experience where God granted to him certain visions and understandings and knowledge and under, uh, deep, deep understandings of the Christian faith. And in the midst of that, you would think that Paul would feel a bit puffed up. It was an unusual experience. In fact, he said, I was caught up to paradise. The word comes from a Persian word that means a walled garden. And when a Persian king wanted to bestow an honor upon someone, he would give them the honor of being a companion in his garden. And it was a great honor for a, uh, someone who lived in that part of the world to be made a companion of the garden with the king, where he would get to actually walk with the king in his walled garden. Paul says, that's what happened to me. 
I was caught up to paradise. I was able to walk with God and I was able to hear things and see things that were just unbelievable. And so, in many ways, one would think, boy, Paul could easily be conceited. But Paul says that instead, in the midst of all that great opportunity, there was great disappointment. The last part of verse 7. He says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, down through the centuries, biblical scholars and people who just read this text scratch their head and say, what in the world was this thorn in the flesh that Paul experienced? Some have thought, well, maybe it was some kind of a physical ailment, that Paul really struggled with some physical disability, an eye problem, malaria, epilepsy, migraine, headaches, something that was debilitating physically for him. Others have thought that the thorn in the flesh was perhaps spiritual in nature, uh, perhaps a deep spiritual struggle within his life, perhaps some kind of a temptation. Some have even said it was a, some kind of a sexual temptation, perhaps, that the Apostle Paul experienced. And others have thought that perhaps this thorn in the flesh was uh, relationships. People in the church who didn't like Paul, who had it in for him, or people outside the church who persecuted him because we know he was beaten up for his faith. Reality is, none of us know what that thorn in the flesh was. And I think probably it's just as well we don't know what it was, because if we read this passage, we'd only identify with it if we had the same thorn in the flesh. But Paul gives an account broad enough here that I think every one of us can identify with it. Whatever this thorn in the flesh was, it was clearly one of the great disappointments in Paul's life. He describes it with great, great intensity. It prevented these mystical experiences from ever leading to pride and conceit. And his initial response was to do exactly what most of us do, want to do. He wanted God to change the circumstances. Verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now when Paul says three times he pleaded with the Lord, I don't think this was just three quick prayers. Paul was a pretty intense guy. We get this sense from a lot of his writings. My guess is these three times were re three really big times, like taking a couple of months of prayer and fasting, or three kind of major points in his life where he asked his close friends to... Uh, pray for him, and gather around him. But the interesting thing was, to know what his prayer was, he asked God to take it away. It wasn't a prayer that he would be able to endure the disappointment. It wasn't a prayer that his own character would deepen and emerge further out of this disappointment and this thorn in the flesh. It wasn't a prayer that he would somehow be drawn closer to God in the midst of it, he rather prayed, God, take it away. Now my guess is that when most of us experience disappointments in life, we go to God in prayer, but what do we do? We go to God to bargain. 
Or we go to God to lighten the load. Or we ask God to get us a different position. Or we ask God to change the other person in the relationship. We go, we somehow go to God and we say, God, take it away. Well, God responded to Paul, but not quite in the way he wanted or in the way he thought. In verse 9, the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. But God's response to Paul's disappointment was not to change the circumstance, but rather to offer something far deeper, far more lasting, far more beneficial for his own life, and that was to offer his grace. Because grace is always God's offer to a hurting humanity. After all, our salvation depends upon God's grace. Grace isn't something we earn. It's not our reward for bearing up in the midst of life's disappointments. Grace is God's unswerving, unwavering love, despite our foibles, despite our sins, despite all of our struggles. And God was trying to make the point to Paul that if it was grace that brought this former persecutor of the church into a relationship with him, if it was grace that forgave him of his sins, it would be precisely the same grace that would enable him in the midst of this great disappointment of the thorn in the flesh. It was solely by God's grace that Paul was anything, and if grace brought him to God, it would be grace that would keep him going in life. Many of you know the story of John Newton he was a former slave trader in England, involved in that, that terrible, terrible industry of taking ships down to Africa, putting Africans in crates and shipping them to Europe, eventually others to the United States. The slave trade was a despicable thing. And that was his industry, that was his business, and God eventually got a hold of his life and cha- transformed him forgave him of his sins, and brought him into a relationship with himself, and he went on to become an Anglican pastor. And John Newton wrote what is probably the best-loved hymn of the Christian church around the world, Amazing Grace. And one of the last verses says this, Through many dangers, toil, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And so God said to Paul when he pleaded with God to take it away, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Because if my grace could forgive your sins, my grace will enable you to deal with whatever disappointment it is that you face in life. But there was something else that God told Paul. Something else that Paul learned when he wanted God to change the circumstances and take the thorn away. He came to learn that he would experience new power in the midst of his weakness. 
verses 9 and 10. Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and then this, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, and we could add in disappointments. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A children's sermon made the point so well, didn't it? It's not the way we would write the script. It just seems so odd. When I am weak, then I'm strong. That somehow power is made perfect or whole or complete in my weakness? Doesn't seem to add up. But the reality, of course, is that it is not our own strength. It is rather that in those moments of deep disappointment in life, we often come to the end of the rope. We can't figure things out. We can't solve the problem. We can't change the circumstances. We can't change the other person. In our own power, we can't even change our own selves. And it's in those moments that we discover the great truth that it is Christ's power within us. Because in those moments when we can't solve it all, we cast ourselves upon the Savior whose grace is sufficient, and it is his power that comes into our lives in powerful ways that we could never imagine. When I was being interviewed for the position of president at Gordon-Conwell, I was asked a question that I will never forget. You know, you go into an interview like that, and I can remember I wanted to make sure that I was really sharp and on target and, and that I demonstrated strength and that I was a together person and I had all the right answers. And I wanted to look presidential and all those stuff. And Leighton Ford, well-known author, preacher, brother-in-law of Billy Graham, who was on the board of Gordon-Conwell at that time, asked me this question. He said, Dennis, he said, are you weak enough for this job. I was so stunned by the question, I didn't know how to respond at first. Are you weak enough for this job? And I doubt if there's a week that goes by that I don't think about that question. I, whenever I see Leighton, I thank him for that question. Because you see, it's in our moments of weakness that we really discover strength, strength like we've never known in life before, precisely because it's not our own strength. It's the strength of the triune God living in us and empowering us and enabling us. Power to not change the circumstances, to fit our preconceived notions of how life ought to treat us, but rather power to face life as it is, thorns and all. And I think it's often in those moments of disappointments that we discover that these really, our disappointments, can actually be divine appointments. Even when people have sinned against us, even when people have wronged us, God has a way of taking the worst circumstances of life, the most horrific disappointments of life, and somehow 
turning around and changing them and enabling us in the midst of them. He does it for individuals. He does it for churches. Where he takes our weakness and he makes power out of it all. Dave Drovecki was a baseball pitcher with the San Francisco Giants. And right in the midst of his baseball career, cancer was discovered in his pitching arm. Looked like his career was over. Drovecki went through various treatments, cancer treatments, and he decided to make a comeback. And he began to pitch. He worked his way back up through the minor leagues. He got back up with the San Francisco Giants, and it was the great story in the sports pages. He was really pitching well, and it looked like he was once again going to have a successful career. And he was pitching in Montreal Stadium one night. He threw a pitch, and there was a crack that was heard all over the stadium. It was not the crack of the bat against the ball. It was the crack of brittle bones in his arm that were broken. His career was over. He went on to write a book, When You Can't Come Back. And he said this. He said, looking back, my wife Jan and I have learned that the wilderness is part of the landscape of faith, and every bit as essential as the mountaintop. On the mountaintop, we're overwhelmed by God's presence. In the wilderness, we're overwhelmed by his absence. Both places should bring us to our knees, the one in utter awe, the other in utter dependence. Most of us like the mountains in life. It's the valleys that make us are difficult. It's the low points in life with which we struggle. But it's precisely in those moments that we rediscover in new and fresh ways the grace of God and the power of God. And so I ask you this morning, what's your big disappointment in life? What's the thing you really are struggling with that just pulls you down, this, this thorn in the flesh to which you go to God again and again and say, Lord, take it away. Whatever it is, whatever the disappointment you face and have faced, God says to you, my grace is sufficient for you. 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 For when I am weak, I am really strong in the strength of the power of Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, we've all faced disappointments. Some of us are facing deep disappointments here this morning, perhaps. And we thank you for this wonderful message from your word. Not our word, but your word that you have given to us so long ago, which speaks so meaningfully and so relevant to our lives today. That your grace is sufficient. And in the midst of our weakness, we know your power. May it be so in our lives this week. For your honor and your glory, for the sake of your kingdom.
In Christ's name we pray.